are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all in your little squares. Good morning. Good morning, Scott. This is the last weekend of May, everybody. Wow. Uh, Where does that go? I mean, should that does that stop after a pandemic when one day just rolls into the next in the month? Or I hope so. Yeah, (laughs) weekends start to feel the same as weekdays, don't they? I hear you. I hear you. So you want to start today with premium offset on your insurance? What does that mean? I know. Really good question, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) That is something. Is somebody going to start paying part of my insurance, like like house insurance and stuff? Yeah, how do I get That'd that? Be great. Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is a topic. It's an interesting topic in the in the sense from insurance perspective in your financial life, and for many different reasons, people end up with a permanent insurance policy, uh, sometimes called whole life, or and in particular with a participating insurance policy. And with a participating permanent insurance policy, in general, you are then able to share in the dividends that are earned by the policy and the insurance company that you've taken it through. So a lot of people think about permanent insurance for different reasons, and and then they get into a discussion with their advisor about something called premium offset. And so I want to talk a little bit about premium offset. How does it work? When can you start it? What, uh, what does dividend scale mean? And then we'll talk about a couple of examples. So for permanent insurance, uh, people will think about it for estate taxes. They've done an estate uh, analysis. They understand how much taxes are going to be at death. And so they use permanent insurance as a way to bridge the gap, pay those taxes, or create a pool of money that they can use to pay the estate taxes. Uh, permanent insurance is also used for estate equalization, Sometimes people, um, uh, maybe it's a blended family, and so they need to worry about uh, previous children from a, a marriage, and uh, or it could be you've got one child involved in a business and you want to equalize your estate. It could be for a legacy. You want to leave a specific amount to your beneficiaries or to a charity. Um, and sometimes with having permanent insurance that you know will be left as a part of your estate allows you to free up and spend your other money which is often a good uh, a good strategy, and often sometimes people use it as a as an alternate asset class. In other words, permanent insurance and the and the cash surrender value are similar to fixed income investments with a very decent and um, a legacy of strong returns and consistent returns. So those are the reasons why people end up with permanent insurance. But how they purchase it and the type of insurance they get, sometimes it's described to them as with using a premium offset feature. And basically, whenever you purchase a permanent insurance policy, you agree to make the basic premium payments for a specified number of years. Sometimes it might be a premium, a 10 pay, might be a 20 pay, and in which case you're basically the, the computer, sorry, the uh, insurance company is using a computer analysis to determine how much you have to pay for those number of years based on the current dividend scale of the insurance company. 
so that you can stop paying after uh, a certain time period. And then the premiums, this premium offset kicks in, and they use the dividends in the policy to pay your annual premium. So the advantage of participating life is that you can use these dividends, if there's any, to pay for part or all of the premium. And as I say, we call this premium offset. Sometimes you may, your advisor may have said a premium vacation. Uh, there's also another acronym, the APPO, which stands for Abbreviated Premium Payment Option. Basically, all of them are a strategy where you, you stop paying after a certain number of years and the policy takes over paying your premium. So that's kind of nice. So let's get into the sort of nuts and bolts of this. How does it work? And when can you premium offset start? What's the dividend scale? And let's give some examples. So the first thing is there's sort of three steps to your inside your policy. Uh, the first thing is is that you receive a dividend. Now, dividends <clears throat> basically are earned uh, as a result of a number of different things. It could be um, the company has had you know, lower premiums, lower costs, uh, but after taxes and everything else, they pay out a share of the dividends, the, the, the growth or earnings within the insurance company to the participating policyholders. And it's usually a percentage. So it might be the dividend scale is 3% or 4%. And typically they try and maintain the same payment structure, but based on economic conditions, that dividend rate can change and it's not guaranteed. So step one is you receive a dividend into your policy based on that of the amount and the current dividend scale. And sometimes your policy might have what's called an enhanced coverage dividend option. And what that means is that your that dividend is used to buy one-year term insurance. So basically you have your, your set policy, but now you're adding some enhanced coverage with that dividend. So it doesn't build up. The second option is that that dividend can go towards the next year's policy premium payment. And this is, this is what the dividend offset does. So if there's not enough money there, um, they'll use that accumulated sort of paid up additional cover policy as well. And again, after that's done, if there's not enough, you have to pay the balance out of your pocket. And so basically, if there's still money left over after that step forward, be you can buy paid up additional coverage for your policy and at the end of the day, that gets added to your coverage as well. So where these policies have gotten into problems is that advisors have typically promised and the insurance companies put out this contract saying, well, you only have to pay for 10 years and then we'll use premium offset for the next 10 years or you only have to pay for 15 years. So they give it um, a projection of how these policies are going to work. Well, or 15 years ago when that was done, uh, interest, rate, interest rates have come down. So the dividends, a lot of companies have changed over time. So what was going to be a premium offset happening for your policy, maybe it's been either it can't be done, it, it, you need to keep paying. And so there's actually been lawsuits over this uh, process because people, and this is, it was solved years ago, but we're going back a couple of decades where uh, promises are made about these dividend and premium offset uh, arrangements. So if you're in a, uh, a strategy right now where you're using premium offset or you're going to be using premium offset, it's really important to understand and redo your projections based on current dividend scales, not what you started 15 years ago or, or 20 years ago when you originally did it. So typically, you can't start this dividend or premium offset function until after there's enough dividends built up and paid up coverage built up to cover the premiums for the future years, for all future years, essentially. 
And the problem is, is that dividends aren't guaranteed. This dividend scale, it's just as a quick review, again, it's a share of profits. So after claims are paid, after expenses are paid, taxes, and then added, you know, performance on the investments that you have, withdrawals, etc., leaves you sort of the dividend amount that can be shared to you. Um, why does this dividend scale affect, affect the premium offset? Well, it's kind of makes sense, right? If you have a, a lower dividend, then you don't have money available to pay the premium, and you may have to pay some out of your pocket. If your dividend increased over time, then maybe you can not only pay the premium offset, start it sooner, or you can uh, you can use the premium offset function. So uh, sometimes people might have you know, questions to get asked. You know, I was using a uh, premium offset, but now I got a letter from my company saying that I have to pay the premiums. And so this is a scenario where the dividend scale has probably changed and you can no longer, the payments for the premium can no longer be made by that dividend within the policy. So if you don't pay it, then they will use what's called a premium loan against the policy. And uh, as soon as that premium loan, you'll be charged interest on that loan, if it gets, becomes greater than your cash value, then the policy ends. So you could be at risk of losing your coverage. So it's important to talk to your advisor if you're um, using policy loans to pay the premiums. Uh, you could pay it out of your pocket for now and then resume that premium offset later. Uh, and you might want to change the enhanced coverage option or reduce it uh, so that the money's not being used to pay for term life, particularly if you're older as well. And uh, so it, it's, at the end of the day, you know, if we were looking at an example, here's a quick, you know, scenario. So somebody, a fictitious client, bought a 20-year pay policy 15 years ago. So in other words, they were told you pay for 20 years, and then after that, the premium will be paid from within the policy, and you're 15 years into it. So you've made those 15 of the 20 annuals. You have five more premium payments annually to make, and we'll just accumulated or paid-up cash value is $60 inside the plan, and your annual premium is $100. So you sort of come to the 16th year, and if the dividend scale uh, is growing and it's now $90 and you owe 100 so you can use that $90 and then use $10 from your accumulated cash value to pay it. And under a scenario like that, you could probably ride out the next five years without using any additional capital or putting any money in. Now, on the other hand, over the 15 years, didn't increase as much, and instead of being $90 a year, it's only $70 a year, and by the time you pay your premium, you use the uh, the dividend plus the cash value and the policy, which was $60, then after two years, you basically have used up all the options, and you are going to have to pay out of pocket for the remaining three years. So these are just sort of some simple examples of how premium offset, it it will, as it gets close to the end of its time period where you're going to stop paying, you've got to be very very careful and understand how is your dividend scale, how much are you earning, uh, what's your cash value or paid up or accumulated paid up additional coverage that can be used to uh, offset the premium as well. And then you'll have a good picture as to whether you'll be able to bridge through the full 20-year period or 15-year period that you've been told. So premium offsets, it's kind of a 
um, having permanent insurance is a great financial planning tool and a great financial planning strategy. And uh, you just need to understand how it's going to be paid for in the future. And if you're using premium offset to make sure that it doesn't run out and you are now going to be faced with paying out of pocket. So talk to your financial planner about your premium offset on your permanent policy. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. All one word. There you can listen to old archive shows as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call. 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. All right, uh, parents helping kids, that usually means writing them a big fat check, no? <laughs> it, it is these days, I'll tell you. I, there's a lot of parents right now, and I know, I'm not sure about you, Andy, but I've a, I have had a few requests, or I, found, I find out after the fact sometimes, that there's a lot of parents helping kids with their down payments for their first house. And under, a, lot of talk about, a lot of talk about it, for sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, understandably so. Um, housing prices have gone up 30% since this pandemic started. And how are kids going to afford this? Like, It's absolutely insane. Now, you know, it, it's one thing to say, okay, I can afford the payment, but it's getting that down payment. So they can afford a mortgage payment, but they can't get the down payment. And, it, and as the housing prices go up further, the down payment obviously goes up with it. So right now, 70% of Canadians over the age 65 are mortgage-free. That's fantastic. That being said, they've got the, they're sitting on this massive asset, their house, that quite often, you know, they're thinking, well, what if I could help my kids with that, perhaps. And in fact, it works out to $1.2 trillion is in equity in their homes across Canada. And that's up from about $800 billion, so call it $400 billion less in the last year and a half. And again, most of that is on the rise of, of uh, the, the housing prices in the last year or so. So I was, uh, one, one uh, financial institution is guessing about 60% of all millennial clients that they're having, so this is a lender, are getting help from their parents these days. 60%. And I don't know about you or Scott or Andy, I, I don't know how many people were getting help from their parents back in our day trying to buy their first house. I didn't get a dang thing. <laughs> no, I was just talking. I was just talking to some clients in their in their early seventies about their thirty something, you know, thirty five year old children, and uh, should they be helping them out? And boy, it's still a it's still a challenge. They said our parents were never in a position to help out, uh, and now you know, in in many ways, we are in a position to help out. So there's a lot more, I think, pressure to help out than there ever has been before. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, now they see this. You know, this money that they may have. And a lot of that money, again, is that feeling of wealth because you're living in an asset that's gone up so much in the last number of years. 
And so it's a bit of a catch-22 because parents are thinking, oh, I better help my kids out before these housing prices get too expensive. And at the same time, they single-handedly are pushing the housing prices up <laughs> by giving them the funds to help them buy that first house. And so it's actually, they, they think it may be the number one reason housing prices have been going up so much. I'm not sure if that's true or not. That's what this article said. But they, uh, getting a little echo here, but they, they're getting, they're pushing the housing prices up. And by doing that, it's, it's just basically they're, they're helping out their kids, which are also, it's a, like I said, a catch-22. So right now, typically in a house in, in Canada, it's about $700,000 to buy a house. Right now, a little over a million dollars in Toronto to buy a house. In fact, I was reading an article last week. Hamilton is in that exuberance level right now. I'm not sure if you saw that, Scott. Yeah, it was like the top three. What uh, the top three uh, most exp- uh, expensive places to live to buy a house now, where the prices have gone up the most. Uh, Hamilton's in the top three. Yeah, unbelievable. And here, you know, it's and it's based on the affordability. So when you see housing prices go up so much, interest rates are low. You know, at the end of March of of this year, so just a couple months ago, it on average is taking sixty three months to save for that minimum down payment. And so when they look at minimum, that's the months to save 10% based on the median household income of that city. So Toronto, as an extreme, it's 277 months to save for your first house based on the median income of somebody in Toronto and what, you know, the, the average cost of a home in Toronto. That's 23 years to save for that first house. Now, Hamilton is actually, funny enough, right on the average 63 months. Ottawa is 39 months. And Vancouver would be even more than Toronto. So it's, you can see how difficult it is for kids to save for their first house. In fact, CIBC is tracking and how many are gifting right now for that first house. And back in 2019... It was about the average gift they were looking at was $99,000 in 2019 is what the parents were gifting their kids to buy that first house. Now, uh, in, a, in 2020, it went up to $124,600 was the average gift. So more than $25,000, a 25% increase. Again, funny enough, that's about what the housing prices went up. So that's not a coincidence. They looked at the last three months ending January of this year, it's now up to $156,000 that parents are, are gifting their kids to help buy that first house. So it, it's really, um, how, it's a question, how, how can we help the kids? That's the one we have, and it's, and it's difficult. So I, I kind of gave an example. So let's say your kids are looking to buy an eight, $800,000 home. It sounds like a lot of money, but that's not too far off the average these days. But they can only afford a $600,000 mortgage based on what they're making. So, you know, 20% down would be 160, but they're going to, you know, they're going to get some help from their parents and, and their parents are going to lend them $200,000. So you've got a few options. These parents have a few options. One, and I know Andy and I have talked about this over the years, is a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. And you can get a home equity line of credit at, prime plus a quarter, which works out to 2.7%. So 
So if you lent your son or daughter $200,000, that works out to $450 per month in interest. So not terrible. So quite often if parents are look at that and say, okay, I can afford that, and, I, and I'll, it's a gift, so they may borrow the money. Now, the reason I'm saying they may borrow is, well, a lot of, I'm finding a lot of seniors don't have a lot of non-registered money. They have their house. They may have a lot of RSP money, but they don't have, you know, accessible money. So a home equity line of credit is one way to do that. The, the downside with that is the interest rates do float. They go up and down. Uh, another option is the parents can actually take a mortgage out of their house. Same idea as a home equity line of credit it is a mortgage, and you can lock it up. And right now, you can easily lock it up for 2.5% for the next five years. And that works out to a 900 per month mortgage payment, and you would actually slowly pay down that mortgage over time. Now, not a big deal, but if you're 70 years old, it's not expected you'll ever pay this off when you lend this off. So, you know, 25 years, you'll, that means you're going to live to 95. Hey, all, all the power to you. I hope you do. But at least you know it's slowly paying out off. And what I'm finding a lot of seniors that, in this example, let's say they had $800,000 in RSPs. Well, they're, th- they're thinking, well, I, I don't have any income per se. I have some pension income and so forth, but I got a lot of RSP money. And it's kind of like dead money because they don't want to tax, they want to touch it because it's taxable. However, most institutions, including ours, look at that RSP as a source of income because those that 800000 can easily pay, um, make an income for yourself and make a payment on a home equity line of credit or a mortgage. So a lot of parents are thinking, I can't really afford this. So what they're doing is they're taking the third option, which I'm not a big fan of, as a, as a first option, and they're going to look at a reverse mortgage. And this is a big trend, especially in Vancouver. Starting in Vancouver because, again, their housing prices got higher faster. And so this has become extremely popular. In fact, year over year from 2019 to 2020, it went up 25%. How many people were using reverse mortgages? Now, there's lots of rules about reverse mortgages. You have to be 20, you have to be 55 years old. And you can, you know, you can borrow up to 55% of the value of a home. But that's variable on a few things. Um, the, the house's value, um, your gender. They look at whether you're male or female because males on average live less than females. So they give more to a male, not sexist at all, simply on the basis that longevity. And, and also they look at your age. So the older you are, the more a higher percentage you can get out of your house because the lender here, there's only two in Canada, they're basically, you don't have to pay this back. This, this money you borrow, so if you took $200,000 and just let it ride and they'll charge you an interest rate, you don't have to make payments on it. It simply gets larger, this debt, and it doesn't have to be paid back until the death of the homeowner. And this is the last homeowner. So if, if you're married, then you, know, you don't have to pay it back after the first death. It's the second death. If the house is sold, you have to pay back this this reverse mortgage or if you move out because they don't want you moving out they want you in that house and you can't simply move out and rent it to somebody um so as soon as one of those three events take you know happen you then have to pay back that loan and really the risk is on the on the lender 
if the housing values do not rise. In fact, right now, if in, there's some talk housing values may actually fall. And, and, but they do have a cushion. They're only lending up to 55% of the value of the house. So they do have some cushion as this debt continues to grow. Now, this sounds too good to be true. And, you know, what's the catch? Well, the catch is you're paying a higher interest rate. The rates on a variable interest rate right now are 4.09%. And I know you can get a mortgage, a five-year variable mortgage rate out of any lender at about prime less 0.9 or prime less 1. Well, if it's prime less 1, that's 1.45%. Well, that's a a 2.6% difference between if you just got a conventional mortgage versus a reverse mortgage. Now, you would say, okay, what about fixed? I like the rates are low. I want to fix it. Well, right now, you can get a a fixed uh, fixed rate loan at 2.14%. Well, the five-year fixed in a reverse mortgage is 5.14%. So a 3% increase on the interest rate. And I'm thinking, okay, there must be a better way to go about this because if you got a home equity line of credit, the payment on that's $450 a month. If you have, a uh, say, a conventional mortgage and you're paying interest and principal, it's 900 a month. Well, if you're, if, if you're a person that has a lot of money in RSPs, and I know Andy and I have talked about this many times over the years, a lot of people are kind of hoarding that money. They don't want to touch it because it's taxable. And why not take some of this money out? You're going to pay tax on this sooner or later. In fact, you know, if you don't pay tax, your estate will pay tax on it. And if you're only making, say, $25,000 a year, you can make 40, 45000 a year in 2021, and you're in a 20% tax bracket. So therefore, if you need 450 a month, that, just, that means you need to take out 562 a month out of your RSPs to make the payment on a home equity line of credit. Pay the tax at 20%, and you'll end up with 450 a month, and you'll slowly drain your RSPs rather than decreasing the equity in your house with a home equity line of credit. Now, the other option, if you use a five-year mortgage and, you have to, and you're actually making mortgage payments, the mortgage payment is 900 a month, but you need to make a 1125 a month payment out of your RSP, pay the tax, and you'll boil it down to 900 a month. So the difference is, do you want to get rid of your RSPs and slowly work those off, or do you want to take in a reverse mortgage? Well, I'd argue that the RSP option would make a lot of sense, because if you take out a reverse mortgage, and let's say it's a $200,000 reverse mortgage in this example, in 10 years, at 5.14%, that $200,000 debt has now increased to $330,000. First, and if you live to 90, that $200,000 debt is now 544000 So if your house has gone up, of course, I'm sure it will over those next 20 years, you've got this greater debt. And that's tax-free money. So when you sell that month, that house down the road for your child, and, and, and they're going to get it, or an estate, they're going to get those funds, that's tax-free money that they're not going to get anymore. So that's a good chunk of cash versus if you did borrow a 2.14% on a mortgage, that $200,000 debt has only gone up to, if you just let it roll, would be 305000 That's a difference 
of $239,000 more interest you're paying to the provider of, of the reverse mortgage. So funny thing is, is if, you know, looking in a state standpoint, if you save that RSPs, there's a very good chance, and in this example where I used 800000 anything you make over 20, uh, 220000 is taxed at 53.5%. So if I had the choice to take these funds out at a, at a rate of 20% and pay, rather than paying 53.53%, first of all, I do that in a heartbeat. In fact, we're recommending this all the time to our clients, even if they don't need the money, if they're not lending the money to the kids, we're asking people right now, let's take the funds out, pay 20% tax, and, and make sure those tax-free savings accounts are maximized. Um, so that would be my first recommendation. So why would people ever use a, a, a reverse mortgage? It's really when it comes down to it, it's, it's financing. So home equity line of credit, a normal mortgage, or a reverse mortgage, they're just different forms of financing. So get the financing that would give you the best rate. Speak to your financial planner. See which makes sense. But the ones that do use a, a reverse mortgage, it's usually because they can't get financing elsewhere. Or sometimes they just don't think that they could use their RSPs money uh, as an income. And there may be the case that if you're in a higher tax bracket now, a reverse mortgage might make sense because you may lose your old age security because of clawback. And you may not want to pull the money out of your RSPs. But in this example, if you're making less than 45000 a year, I definitely would look at home equity line of credit first to help out your kids or a mortgage. And my last resort would be a reverse mortgage to help out the kids with that down payment on their first home. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Uh, this is an interesting st- uh, segment coming up. At what age do you allow your kid to have a debit card? When does this become a good uh, teaching moment for the kids? It's, that's exactly it, uh, Scott. It is. It is sort of talking about that teaching moment, and uh, there's there's various research and articles about uh, what makes sense. Parent blogs about what makes sense and different experiences, and uh, so there's no 100% right or wrong answer. You will know your child better than most, and some kids are ready, and some kids aren't. Uh, but I would say. The general, there's a couple of general rules of thumb here, and the thought process is, is that prior to age 12, that children typically are using just cash. So that might be cash in the form of an allowance, cash in the form of them purchasing things and making payments. Now, what's interesting, though, is that with the pandemic, it really forced a shift because those those kids that are 8, 9, or 10, or, or 11, you know, they... They weren't able to use cash at some, quite a few stores, right? They were trying to discourage cash and force 
children uh, and everybody over to a debit card or a credit card. But I'm curious, I'm just thinking, like, for Don and Scott in your own situation, were your kids, when would, at what age did your kids shift from using just, say, cash to credit or a plastic debit card? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, right. All they have is plastic now, so I can't remember when they <laughs> used know. cash. I I, I'm thinking when they finally started paying for things. Yeah, so yeah really. Maybe that's why I haven't I'm seen it yet. High school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, and that's that's sort of that gr- that age twelve to thirteen age, mm-hmm. right? like yeah. getting into grade nine. Yeah, makes sense. And um, so, I think that again, as, you know, each kid has their own sort of thought process and parent will have their own thought process around this. But I think you learn sort of the ropes paying with cash and then you want to introduce that paying with plastic. And then eventually we're moving on to digital money and then ultimately paying for things with an app on your phone. And I think that's the way most uh, most children are going to sort of accelerate through that process. And uh, so, you know, some of them, as I said, have had to start using the credit cards or debit cards already, and uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think um, the, the next step, though, is really about being good role models when it comes to using both plastic, cash, and just your overall financial uh, role model for your children is probably going to be the biggest impact that you can have in terms of how they manage money, and how they do financially going forward. So I just had a quick uh, true-false uh, questionnaire. And uh, so, Don, maybe anybody grab a pen and pencil and uh, just write down true or false, true or false. I'll rapid-fire through these questions, and then we'll tally it up and see whether you're a good role model or not. Okay. Question number one. <laughs> I wouldn't stretch myself financially in order to drive a nice car. Question two. I try to stay up to date on the tax issues that affect me. Question number three, I like to discuss investments. Question number four, if I won the lottery, I wouldn't noticeably change my lifestyle. True or false, right? Number five, I usually am eager to get to work. Next, learning is an important key to financial success. Next, I am reasonably careful with money. Next, I adhere to a structured budget. Next, I always conduct due diligence on my investments. Next, when I get advice, I seek a second opinion. Next, I keep well informed for everyday financial decisions. Next, I know where I'm going and how to get there. Next is, if there is something I want to buy but don't need, I walk away and sleep on it. Next, I pay off my credit card balance every month. Next, I reflect on past investment decisions to see what I can learn. Next, I don't gamble with my savings by taking excess risks. Next, I try and shop carefully using coupons and waiting for sales. And finally, I can afford everything I need. True or false? So you probably have more trues than falses. I hope so. If you count up how many falses, how many falses did you end up with, Scott? Uh, two and a half to three. One I could go either way on, but I'd say at least two, That's maybe three. So, yeah. 
I I was I was the same. I was fifteen uh, true and three falses. Yeah. Which, uh, so if you have ten true, so five falses or more, you've got some work to do in terms of your role modeling. If you're between ten and fifteen trues, so uh, you know three to three to eight falses, <clears throat> then um, you're modeling good behavior for some of the time, but you got to keep working on it. And if you're in the 15 to 18 trues, congratulations, you're modeling good behavior almost all the time. Yay! So I think you both fell into that category. Yes. So that's great. You know, being a role model is probably the greatest impact you're going to have on your children's financial success. And there was a quick um, review in talking to young adults. How do they feel about what they've learned from their parents? And there was one quote from uh, a gentleman named Justin uh, he said, the most valuable thing I learned about managing money from my mom has been the importance of living within your means. And uh, he said, I've heard that uh, trying to hold on to money is like trying to scoop water up in your hands and keep it from running through your fingers and dripping hmm. out. <laughs> and then finally he said, uh, um, I, I, I try not to be uh, the kind of consumer that comic George Carlin mocked. He said, as people spending money like Spending money they don't have on things they don't need to impress people they don't even like. <laughs> and one other twenty-four-year-old uh, said, "When it comes to spending, I learn to wait for things I need or want to go on sale. I rarely pay full price." And uh, so, just some interesting things that people have learned from their parents over the years, and uh, it sinks in. You never think it will, but uh, it does. So, be a good financial role model. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Call now, leave a message, they'll return your call, and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Uh, always a big debate over whether you should borrow money to invest. Is it worth it? Yeah, talk about things you, you may not learn from your parents, and this probably could be a good thing because most parents are saying pay off your debts, um, get that mortgage paid off. Um, and, and some of this is really old school. You go back to you know probably depression days in the 20s, you got to get rid of debt. And I know people even put debt ahead of getting RSPs, and put in, and I know Andy and I've talked to many years, over many years about having, you know, make sure you get RSPs done and take your tax savings and maybe pay off your mortgage, stuff like that. So debt is, is, is part of it, but you've got to look at the whole net worth, both the asset side and the debt side. And the end of the game is, you know, your net worth is your assets less your debts equals your net worth. And our job really, and everybody really wants to do is maximize their net worth. So right now, interest rates are low. And people thinking, okay, well, maybe I should just borrow. The market's been really good. And at the end of the day, I can tell you right now, leveraging or borrowing to invest, also known as leveraging, adds risks. Because, first of all, you have a debt. And now you have to make a payment on that debt. I know there's some advisors that in the past have taken the actual investment to make the payment on it. And I'll show you this in a short time here, but that just doubles down on the risk. 
because now you're actually selling part of the investment to make payments on that, make the payments on the debt. The nice thing with borrowing to invest, the interest is tax deductible. So if you're sitting there with money in an investment and you got a, a similar amount in, in a non-tax deductible debt, such as a car or a house, well, if you borrow for, the, for um, investment purposes, that's considered a carrying charge and you get to write off that interest. So therefore, why, it would make sense then, if, as long as there's not a big tax penalty, to take your investment, pay off the debt, re-borrow the money, buy back the investment. And if you did that, and you have to wait 30 days to buy back the same investment, or you can buy a similar investment right away. But if you did that, now you still got the same debt, but now the debt's for the investment rather than the house or the car, and therefore it's tax deductible. So that makes some sense. But really, at the end of the day, everybody is borrowing to invest when they buy a house. Every time you have a mortgage, that's borrowing to invest. And, but, but the thing is, you have to live somewhere. You don't have to live. You can't live in an investment portfolio. And therefore, okay, that seems like a necessity. Um, so portfolio, and also when you're looking at you know, your comfort level, if your house was valued daily, and you saw it on the market, on the front page, what the price of your house did up or down, it might drive you crazy. And this is when you're borrowing for investment purposes. Your portfolio is valued daily. So you got to think, okay, does that really make sense? Your house, on the other hand, does grow tax-free. You, when you're borrowing for a portfolio, it does not grow tax-free. It's a capital gain. On the same token, though, you don't get to deduct your mortgage payments. You get to deduct your investment payments. So... There has been in the past, we talked about a Smith maneuver years ago, where as you were paying down your mortgage, you took that exact same amount of money and increased your line of credit and invested it. So, but I just found that just took forever. So it just didn't seem to work. You know, after 10 years, you, you pay off like 10% of your mortgage. It hardly seemed to make sense. So really, how comfortable would you have been back in January of 2020, you borrowed 100000 and invested it, and three months later, it was worth $70,000. So you still owe the seven, you still owe the hundred grand. But if you and your investments are only worth seventy, so you're right now in the hole thirty thousand dollars. Plus, you're making payments on this, so you're actually in the hole more than that. So everybody thinks of the good side of things, and as long as it's looked as a long-term strategy, you do not watch this all the time. It could make sense. So. Just as an example, if you borrowed $100,000 at, call it 3%, the return was 5%, and you took 50%, you're in a 50% tax bracket, and you took that money, the, the tax savings, and put that into a tax-free savings account. Well, that $100,000 would cost you $2,950 per year at 2.95%. Well, interesting enough, that $100,000 would grow to $163,000 in 10 years. Now, you got to pay back that $100,000 loan. So let's say you cash the whole thing in, pay back the $100,000, and you also have capital gains because it's grown by $63,000. So you got about $16,000 in capital gains. The end result is your profit would be $47,250 after paying back the loan and after paying the, the tax on the capital gain. If you invested the tax savings in the TFSA, you'd have another $18,552. So at the, as a full result, you'd end up with $66,000 
sitting in an investment after 10 years, just earning 5%. Now, if you just saved the $29.50 per year, did not do this investment loan strategy, just took $2,950 a year and threw that into a tax-free savings account, you'd end up with $37,000 after that period of time. So the net result is you're almost $30,000 ahead by using an investment loan strategy over 10 years. Awesome awesome option. However, how comfortable are you going to be on the ups and downs of the stock market? So as long as you can keep a look at the 10-year chunk of time and look at this as part of your overall strategy, this might make sense for you. You know, when we buy a car and drive it off a lot, we don't seem to care about that stuff. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's down 25% right away. There you go. That's an essential item. That's right. All right. Like boats. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message, 905-529-7165. They'll return your call. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well as listen to old archive shows. That's it for another week. Thank you, gentlemen. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.